first scripture reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10. Then they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, Call him. So they came to the blind man. Cheer up, on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you, Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, what you will wear. Look at the birds of the air. See how the flowers of the field grow. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom, and all these things will be given to you as well. We're now in uh, week two of this two-week mini-series we began last week on the subject of financial giving, giving your money back to God, and we do this every year on the second and third Sundays in November leading up to our annual Thanksgiving offering. What I said last week, and I'll repeat it now, is that surprisingly these, these two weeks of the year, rather than being something that people dread, are two of the most look forward to weeks of the year, and they're, they're two of the most look forward two weeks of the year for me as well because, as I said last week, I have actually seen more spiritual growth and more life transformation from these two weeks of the year, from this topic, than from the other 50 weeks of the year combined. So why is that? What is it about giving that makes it so powerful? Why is giving such a big deal? The answer to that is because giving deals with and addresses the two biggest obstacles that people have to growing in their relationship with God. And we looked at the first one already last week. Last week what we said is that the, the, the first reason that people have a hard time getting closer to God, the first big obstacle keeping them from growing in their relationship with Him is that they already worship another God named money, and they are already devout adherents of another religion called materialism. Materialism is the greatest spiritual disease plaguing people today, especially in this city. So we talked about last week. This week we're going to talk about problem number two, the second greatest obstacle that keeps people from connecting with God and growing deeper in their relationship with God, which is this problem of, of a type of doubt, but it's a specific type of doubt. It's not the doubt of whether God is there. It's the doubt of whether God cares, whether he cares about you, whether he cares about the details of your life, and whether he wants to be involved in the details of your life. It's not about whether he's real. It's about how real is he? How real is God? And 
The reason giving is so powerful is because it addresses this second problem at the exact same time as it addresses the first problem. It, it kills two birds with one stone. So we already talked about last week how giving is the antidote to materialism and how if you give violently enough and aggressively enough, it can break the grip that money has on you. What we're going to see this week is it's the exact same thing with giving when it comes to the second problem of this specific type of doubt. There's no faster way, no better way, no easier way to realize for the first time that God does care about you, that he does care about the details of your life, that he is powerful enough to intervene. No easier way to get over those doubts than to give God an uncomfortably large amount of your money. That's, That's the answer. So how is that? Why does giving solve this problem of doubt? That's what we're going to spend the rest of the morning talking about. And I've got two principles I want to share with you. Uh, The first principle is that God can only work with what you give him. He can only work with what you give him. The second principle is that whenever you give to God, God always gives back to you. First principle, God can only work with what you give him. Second principle, whenever you give to God, God will always give back to you. Now, normally we have three sections. That's only two principles. So what that means is in between, we're still going to have three sections, but the third section is going to, or the middle section, is going to be stories from, from folks in the congregation. I want you to hear two stories from people in the congregation about these two principles in between them. So first, the first principle, which is that God can only work with what you give him. Another way of stating that, putting it positively, would be that to say that whatever you give to God, he will work with. In whatever area of your life you open up to him, he will come into, but only into that area. In other words, you get to decide where and how God works in your life to some extent. So uh, you see this principle in the Gospels a lot. We actually referred to it relatively recently, about a month ago, but we used a scripture passage this morning that, that has this in it. Where Jesus, constantly in the Gospels, what he's saying to people is he's asking them this question, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? And that's what you saw in this morning's scripture reading. There's this blind guy, Bartimaeus, he's calling out, Jesus, have mercy on me, trying to get his attention. Jesus comes over, and that's what he says. He says, what do you want me to do for you? In other words, okay, you're saying have mercy on me. How do you want me to have mercy on you? In what area of your life do you want me to show my power? And he says, well, I'm blind, so I'd like to see. And Jesus says, all right, your faith has healed you, and he immediately receives his sight. But the the crucial thing to understand is the, the person who's asking gets to decide, and people ask for different things, and they get what they ask for. So this guy, he wants to be healed physically, and Jesus heals him physically. Other people ask spiritual questions, and they get spiritual answers. Or maybe the best example, there's a place where this boy gives Jesus these loaves and these fish, and Jesus multiplies them. He turns them into more loaves and more fish. But it never happens that he makes an executive decision and just pulls a switch on someone. You know, it, you never have it happen where somebody gives him loaves and fishes and he turns it into meat and potatoes. He doesn't, he doesn't decide for himself, well, this is what you need. Somebody doesn't say, I'd like to get healed. And he says, no, what you really need is you need to to learn something, so let me drop some knowledge on you. Rather, he gives what he is asked for, and he works with what he's been given. You say, okay, that's, that's interesting. What's the point? How does this relate to me? What I've found is that people don't intuitively understand this principle, and they think that they can invite God into one area of their life, 
and that he will then, on his own initiative, sort of worm his way into every other area of their lives. But it doesn't work like that. God is a gentleman, and he only goes where he's invited. So for many people, New Yorkers especially, where you start is you start with the mind. You start by inviting God into your mind. And you, you approach faith on this intellectual level. Where you start thinking about God, you start uh, reading the Bible maybe, you start listening to sermons, you start reading books about God. What you're doing is you're allowing God to inhabit your thoughts. And he does. He inhabits your thoughts. And for the first time, you never thought this was going to be the case, but for the first time, God actually starts to make sense to you. And the whole thing starts to seem credible on an intellectual level. But what people often ask me is they say, okay, he's starting to make sense to me, but here's what bothers me. How do I know that God is not just in my mind? And my response to that is, he is just in your mind. He is just in your mind because that's the only area you've given him access to. The reason it feels like he's just in your head is because he is. And you haven't opened up the rest of your life to him. So the next place people go usually is the emotions. You know, first he starts to make sense, then you start to open up your heart to him as well. And he starts to not only make sense intellectually, but you start to feel that God is real. But it's it's still the same problem. Your thoughts and your emotions, it's still all inner and it's still all subjective. And you have no external, objective evidence of the reality of God. So how do you get that? How do you get that real evidence that God is really real? The answer is incredibly simple. To find out that God is real, you have to give him something real to work with. You have to open up an objective, tangible area of your life. And you you see where I'm going with this. The easiest way to do that is to give him your money. Because money is real. Money is as real as it gets. It's tangible. You can, you can hold it. You can count it. You can smell it, if that's your thing. And, and most, most importantly of all, you can use it. You can use it to get things done, which is the whole reason why people, going back to last week, that's the whole reason why people worship money to begin with is because money can get things done. And you have these needs these real needs, you know, I have to have a place to live, I have to have clothes, I have to be able to save for retirement, I have to eat. And money promises to be able to meet those needs. So it's, well, what choice do I have? I have to turn to money, and I have to look to money, because money can meet the real needs that I have. And God is sitting there watching this saying, well, you haven't even given me a chance. You know, I, I promise to meet those same needs too, and you haven't even given me a chance. You've already placed your trust over here. Why don't you at least give me the opportunity and see what I can do? And this is the main thrust of that famous section of the Sermon on the Mount that we read during this morning's scripture in the second passage, where Jesus says, look, you, you do realize that God knows you need these things, right? He, he you know, lists off all these same material needs that we were just talking about. Uh, I need a place to live, I need food, I need clothes. He says, you, you know that your father knows you need that stuff. It's like, it's like you think that he doesn't understand. Like he doesn't get that side of reality or, or know how to work with those sorts of issues. Like you, you, you think like, you know, God, he's more like, he's more like the, the spiritual guy. You know, what God's good at is he's good at like love. He's really good at love. He's good at uh, like right and wrong. God knows a lot about right and wrong. He's good at relationships. And I always, I always go, I definitely go to him when I need help with those sorts of issues. But, but this stuff, you know, uh, money and, and budgets and salaries and, uh, you know, the, the, the numbers. I mean, come on, I, I'm the numbers guy. I, I know numbers. I do numbers for, for a living. I, I doubt God would even understand the numbers that I work with. God doesn't understand 
derivatives. God doesn't understand these, these complex financial instruments. I am the numbers guy, so I'll take care of the numbers, and God can worry about the spiritual stuff. And Jesus is saying, you are really getting this wrong, and you're really missing out by limiting God to such a small slice of your life. You're confining him to this one area, and that means that he can only work in that one area. And if you would just open him up, if you, if you would just give him this other stuff to work with, then he could work with that. It's that, like the guy with the, the loaves and the fishes. He can only multiply what you give him. But if you only give him your mind and you only give him your heart, he can't turn thoughts and feelings into dollars and cents. That's not how he works. You have to give him something real to find out that he's real. And when you do, then it changes how you see him. You know, my, I, like I said, these are my two favorite weeks of the year. And, and what I love about it is getting to watch. Every year people do this for the first time. People give God their money. And then maybe they've given a little bit before, but they, they give a lot more than they've ever given before. And they, they place their trust in him. They place their faith in him to meet their material needs. And they do that, and I, I could watch this a thousand times. It's the exact same thing every year. You would think it would be boring, but it's not, you know, because I'm addicted to seeing this. People, the, the look on their faces, the surprise to find out that God is real. Not just real spiritually, but real, like really real. Because if he can't meet your real needs, then he's not a real God. On the other hand, if he can meet your real needs and he can work in the material world, and you start to figure that out, Imagine how that makes your faith take off in ways that years of Bible reading and church attendance and prayer never could. So uh, that's the first section of the sermon. We're going to head into the middle section now. I want you to hear two stories uh, from people in the congregation about this happening. First, you're going to hear from Dan and Daisha Ferris, and then you're going to hear from Moses. So first, welcome Dan and Daisha. What's up? I'm Daisha. This is Dan. So she's more prepared than me. She actually wrote notes down. I'm using my cell phone, so I'm not Facebooking anyone, <laughs> not texting my mom. That's what I'm using to reference. But You're Snapchatting during Let church. me just start, too, by saying that Ryan said it earlier. Like It's weird that our church looks forward to these two weeks out of the year, um, but I'm so thankful that they do. Um, it does... It's like the rest of the year is the regular season, and this, these weeks are the Super Bowl. And um, without Ryan B having the intensity and pushing us to really ex- experience God in a real way, we wouldn't be standing up here telling you this story. So I'll let her start. I'd like to start by saying that my husband has a $20 rule. The rule goes something like this. If it's over $20, we can't buy it. It doesn't make a lot of sense. Both Dan and I didn't grow up with very much. We were raised in similarly low-income households, but it affected us in opposite ways. Dan ended up a saver, and I ended up a spender. As you can imagine, this has made for a very interesting marriage at times. Though my parents didn't teach me how to save, they did teach me how to tithe, to always give a part of what I earned back to God. But over the years, I would give inconsistently and went through periods of time of not giving at all for one reason or another, whether it be moving into a new apartment and losing my wallet or my checkbook, um, just plain forgetting, or wanting to spend the money on myself and buy fun things. Um, And the list goes on and on, and I came up with multiple excuses. But then after a while, I would always get back on track and start giving again. And I'm not sure the exact day that I 
realize this, but at one point I started to connect the dots and I learned my lesson that in the times when I was giving, I was um, strangely flourishing financially. And the times when I wasn't giving, I was struggling financially, even though in, the, in both scenarios, I, was, I typically had the same amount of income or similar income. It was an epiphany that would change the way I think about giving. And it was a lesson that both Dan and I learned on an even deeper level during last year's Thanksgiving offering. So to tell you more about that, Dan, the saver, can tell his part of that story. Um. All right, so the $20 rule is legit, but obviously it's a bit of a joke around our house. Um, I, I don't let her spend a lot of money on certain things, which is sad at times. But, um, but we all know you walk out the door in New York City, you're spending 20 bucks. So it's, it's a little bit far-fetched, but, um, you know, honestly, um, I've just been a saver since as long as I can remember. I've been obsessed and... Uh, unhealthily obsessed with money. I've smelled it several times. I like counting it. Um, Daisha will tell you she's witnessed it. I love to like flaunt it in her face. Um, but it's all, all kidding aside. Um, I just had this unhealthy relationship and obsession with money and, um, it's kept me from buying a lot of crap. Can I say crap or church? Um, over the years, just stuff that I don't need. Um, so I, in, in that way I'm thankful, but you know, I've never been consistent with my giving, to be honest. I understand the, the idea behind tithing. And like Daisha said, the times, I feel like the times when I gave, um, you know, when I was tithing more regular, we were being blessed more regular. And it's like, hey, can you not connect the dots? But, um, you know, it's really been a hindrance to my relationship with God. And I don't think I realize that. Um, I've always thought and sort of openly expressed that I'm thankful for all that God's blessed me for, but I've never truly acted a, upon that. And, and Ryan talked about that already. You know, it's, this is a real thing. This is, this is tangible. These, these are, um, this isn't just an idea bouncing around in your head. So um, last year, it was time to put my money where my mouth was, I think, and for both of us. Um, it, we, we prayed about it. We were in small group, um, and we talked about it a lot. And it's funny because we kind of both came up with the same number, which was very uncomfortable, um, especially for me. Uh, but it was funny that we both kind of came up with the same number. So, you know, we have two kids under, under two at the time. Um, we were living in an 800 square foot apartment, which was we knew we needed to upgrade. So we're looking at spending more money there. Um, we have, you know, four mortgages. Most of them are, you know, properties in Arkansas, where we're from, but... Long story short, um, we knew we had a, a lot of additional expenses coming up this next year, and we thought, how can we squeeze this out, and how can we really give all this money away, you know? So, um, but we came up with a number, and we decided to just do it and take that leap of faith, um, and I'll let Daisha tell you. So in the year that followed, we, nothing too exciting happened at the beginning of the year. We were continually blessed financially which we were very thankful for. Um, but it seemed like we never really saw an obvious like pinpoint sign. So I was like, what am I going to tell Ryan this year that happened? I don't know. Um, and then until Dan received word that he would be getting a freelance job in September that would pay in one day the exact amount of our Thanksgiving offering, um, which was uncomfortable for us. So that was pretty amazing. We felt like that was God saying, you were worried you were scared, you were uncomfortable, but look what I can do in one simple day. Um, and it made me smile. And so now we have more confidence to increase our offering this year. Mm -hmm. um, 
And not only that, but then we, we started thinking about it, and here we are coming up to the Thanksgiving offering, and we realized that our savings, which is where we took the money from, has more than doubled when all the odds were against us. Like Dan said, we got a way more, we have an apartment that we can't afford. We have all these mortgages, and we have childcare and daycare and all these things, and so it's pretty remarkable. Um, for me, there was a real freedom in giving back to God what was his in the first place and then just sitting back and letting him do what he does best. He is, as Ryan said, a better money manager than any of us would like to believe that we are. Plus, I loved knowing that the money that I was giving was actually going to something that was going to make a difference. I work in the fashion industry, so as most of you know, it's a rather shallow industry. So a lot of times I'm thinking to myself, is what I'm doing even going to matter in the long run? Um, but taking the money that I'd earned and being able to put it toward something um, that was God's and put it toward his work in the world really changed my perspective on my work also. So, Yeah, and I think uh, for my part, you know, obviously we collectively gave. So a lot of this praying and um, everything that we did to give to the Thanksgiving offering, we decided on together. Um, and so while it's an individual, you know, step out, as, as a married couple, you know, we, we gave together. We, we watched our family flourish and be blessed together, so that was awesome. And just stepping outside of my comfort zone, because obviously I'm a bit of a money hoarder, but this, this sort of changed my mentality um, about that process. You know, this, this process of saving that I've been doing my whole life, which I never understood and seemed very unhealthy, I now view as a gift from God. You know, it's a way for me to not buy into to buying things that we don't need and being able to save and double our savings so we can give more back to him. And, um, and you know, that money he can do and our church can do, and I love how transparent our church is with how they spend the money. You know, we have two kids. Our lives are crazy. We work hard. We don't have a lot of time to dedicate to, even to our church, we, don't ded- we talk about how can we give more back to the church, and we, we don't do enough. So the best way that we felt like we could do that is by handing it over and letting not only our church manage it, but God manage it however he wants to, to grow his kingdom. So um, to sum it up, you know, I found that I'm going to read through this because I want it to, the point to be uh, driven home, but it's, it's drawn me closer to God. I think that I was hesitant, um, and it's, it's revealed to us how much he can provide. You know, when you, when you take that leap of faith— what is it in Hebrew? Faith is a substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. That's exactly what this is. You know, it's like I, we, we were so scared. We were so worried um, about financially how we were going to get through next year. And here we are standing up here, obviously, telling you the story. So God is way more powerful than, than you could ever imagine. Um, and the uh, I think that it's twofold. It's it's the best way to show gratitude for his provision. Provision. It's also one of the best expressions of faith. Um, so you're you're taking that leap of faith. You're showing him that you're confident, and you're relying on him to give you the proof that that um, that he will stand behind it and and uh, bless your life. So um, let's see if I missed anything. <clears throat> that's that's pretty much it. That's our story. <laughs> Thank you. I got off on it. And now for the second story, please welcome Moses Toyla.
I've also got my phone, but I am not Snapchatting, I promise. Um, so the past year has been really, really remarkable in my life. Uh, this time last fall was a tough time for me because my company had run out of money and my partners and I were going unpaid. And that was still the case at the time of, of last year's Thanksgiving offering. But we had new investors on deck, so I decided to give pretty aggressively double what I had given the previous year, um, e- even though the new capital wasn't really scheduled to come in until Christmas Day. So after making that commitment, I foolishly tried to dictate to God how he was going to move in my life. I like expected, all right, my company is going to get acquired, and it's going to net me 30, 60, 100 times what I had pledged. Like I have spreadsheets mapping this out. Um, and I thought that was perfectly biblical. Um, <laughs> so when in the spring our biggest vendor terminated their agreement with us, I was sure it was like the first step of that that they were taking in preparation to acquire us. And I started thinking, this is it. Here comes God's provision. Instead, that was not the case. The termination was just that, and, uh, and which meant instead of a big payout coming, um, my financial future looked a little unstable and the company's prospects looked pretty dim. So at this point, I was, if I'm being completely honest, I started to feel a little hoodwinked by God, um, where, you know, he had promised to provide for people who trusted him with their finances by giving, and yet things seemed to be going exactly the opposite of that for me. I felt like I had held up my end of the bargain and God hadn't necessarily held up his. Um, so because of all this, I kind of started reevaluating whether or not I should continue with my company. Even before things had started to look bleak, I wasn't really sure that my role really matched up with my strengths and gifts. So, um, But once kind of this vendor terminated their agreement with us, I felt like I, didn't, I wasn't in a position to leave because that would make things worse. Um, so after lots of conversations and counseling with my parents and with Ryan and folks in our summer group, um, I did become convinced that if my heart wasn't in it, then it would also be the best thing for my company if I split ways. Um, so I decided to look around for new things and something that fit my gifts. And in my search, I found exactly two opportunities that got me excited and I applied. But I was still a little bit bothered by the idea of jumping ship and leaving my partners in a difficult situation, um, which is why it was kind of amazing uh, over the course of the summer that as I was starting to look for a new job, things started turning around at my company. Um, there was more interest in a new product we had created than what we were doing before, and we were on the verge of landing some major clients. Um, and as God would have it, everything really came together somewhat miraculously the week before Labor Day. That same week included both my final interview at one of the new jobs and like a deal-closing meeting with a, the biggest potential new client for the company I was at. Um, and both went perfectly. I got the job. We landed the deal. Um, which put our company in a secure enough position that me leaving wouldn't be completely devastating. And on top of that, uh, the offer of the new company was far more than I would have expected I would be able to command in terms of compensation. Um, so that's all incredible enough, but there's a lot more to what God was doing than the material blessings. First, I grew a lot in my relationship with my parents over the past year. Historically, I've never been very open with them just because I've always thought they wouldn't understand me, and that's been changing over the past years. I've been forced to be more vulnerable with them um, about my situation and go to them for advice. I grew in my capacity to submit to spiritual guidance rather than just be guided by my impulses, and I had to develop the courage to have some really difficult conversations with 
my partners about leaving, which I expected to go terribly, ended up going really smoothly. Um, so when I look back, I can see that God kind of used my he used my decision to give. Um, sorry, um, here we go. Uh, in ways I wouldn't have expected. I not only did he provide financially, but you know he he used the position that I placed myself in to to force me to grow in all of these different ways. And you know there was a there's a song we sang in worship, and a couple weeks ago when we sang it, it's praise to the Lord the Almighty. Like one line hit me really hard, which was, "Hast thou not seen how thy desires all have been granted in what He ordaineth?" and God could have just provided a big payout like I had dictated, but instead he provided in a way that supplied not just my material wants, but also my spiritual needs. Um, and for a while, part of me was thinking, all right, maybe I'm not holding up my end of the bargain. You know, maybe God isn't going to move in my life until I fix all these things that I'm not doing, whether it's spending more time with God or being more diligent at work or, you know, being distracted less by friends and just focusing on him. Maybe like that, maybe I'm just doing it wrong. And I'll say like over the past year, I've grown a little bit in these areas, but not a ton. And God still decided to be gracious to me. Um, and I don't understand it. Uh, but I guess that's, that's the point. Um, and yeah, it's been a crazy, awesome, insane year. And, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to just giving again and, and in a sense, playing a game with God uh, where I can see how aggressively I can give and how much he can bless me again. So uh, we're about two-thirds of the way through. It's going to go a little longer than usual. I don't want you to get antsy. Um, but with the, the 10 or 12 minutes we've got left, the last section of the sermon, I want to talk about the second principle, which you heard referred to in the stories and was already implicit in the first principle too, but just want to make it explicit now, which is that when you give to God, God will always give back to you. When you give to God, God will always give back to you. And, and more than just making this principle explicit, what I also want to do in the time we have left is defend this idea against critics and, and cynics and detractors. Because what I've been doing for the last five years at this church is, is two things with respect to this principle. First, I've showed it to you over and over again from Scripture. This promise in the Bible that where God says, if you give to me, I'll give back to you. And there, it's all over the Bible, and I've shown you those passages before. The other thing we've done every year is we've had these stories of people who have tried it and seen it to be true in their lives. But I think that for some of you, that there's still some of you who, who feel like, you know, the, the whole thing just really bothers me. The whole idea that you give to God and then God gives back to you, it just, it just really, uh, not only does it, it bother me, it actually upsets me. It upsets me that in, in 2015 in New York City, it shocks me that somebody with above an eighth grade education would stand up and say, look, you just give your money to the church and, and God will, will magically just, just make money flow back to you. You know, that, that, in the first place, that, that sort of superstitious thinking is the problem with the world today. That's the source of everything that's wrong with the world. You know, God, God created the world in seven days and he's going to give me money and everything's going to be fine. You know, it's everything I hate about the world. In the second place, that, that is religion at its absolute worst. It's religion at its most primitive, at its most tribal, at its most 
unevolved, it's lower class religion, this idea of give so God will give back to you. It's not even just that I don't believe that it works that way. It's that I don't even want it to work that way. I, I don't even like the idea of it working that way. So that's the person I want to address. Those are the sentiments I want to address in these few minutes we have left. And I want to make two arguments. Uh, first, you know, because you're making two claims, essentially. You're saying, first, I don't believe that it works that way. And second, I don't even want it to work that way. So first, what I want to say to you is I want to make a logical argument about why it actually has to work this way. As a matter of necessity, logically, why this has to be true. And then second, I want to make a more uh, relational, emotional, even aesthetic argument about why it not only has to work this way, but why it's good and beautiful and right and lovely and appealing that it works this way. So first, the the logical argument of why it has to work this way, that God gives back to those who give to him. And the way I want to do this is, uh, you know, in the field of logic, one of the accepted ways of demonstrating the proof of a proposition is to assume the opposite of it and show how the opposite can't hold up, how it's, how it's, uh, doesn't hold water. It's called the reductio ad absurdum, which is Latin for reduced to absurdity. This is the only thing I remember from my philosophy major. Um, so I'm really excited to get to use this. Uh, reductio ad absurdum, let's assume the opposite is true. That's what I want to do. Assume that the opposite of what the Bible says is true, and let's assume that God does not give back to those who give to him. So he, he wants his work done in the world. His work requires money, uh, and he expects his people to give to that work, but he expects them to, to do it just out of obedience, out of sacrifice, and they don't ever get anything back in return. So if that's the case, what would happen? Well, people would give, and then they would have less money. And if they kept giving, eventually they would run out of money altogether, which would result in two things. In the first place, everyone who was not giving would see that happening and would say, okay, good, now I know what not to do. You know, if even, especially if you think about this generationally, if you think about this as kids watching their parents, and their parents give, and their parents run out of money, and the kids say, well, that didn't work, so I'm going to live my life a different way. The whole thing would die out in one generation. But, but secondly, and this is even actually more interesting to me, not just would there not be any new givers, because they'd be dissuaded by this example, but in the second place, the people who did give, let's say that they still believed and let's say that they wanted to give more. But as, as they give and as they run out of money, they actually can't give anymore because they don't have anything else to give. So eventually their money dries up. Eventually the money given to God's work dries up. And eventually the work itself dies out. You see where I'm going with this? If, if God wants his work in the world to continue, he actually has to give back to those who give to him. It's, it's not a choice. He has to, for his own self-interest, give back to those who give to him. And what this helps to clarify is this, this point that may have, you may not have been clear on before, which is the ultimate reason and the end game of why God gives back to those who give to him. It's not so that those people can become rich. If you, if you want to become rich, there are a lot of easier and less stressful ways to become rich. Rather, the reason God gives back to those who give to him is because he's seen what they do with the money. 
He's seen where that money ends up when he gives to them. And so he gives back to them so they can give more the next time. And the scripture is, is, I'm not like inferring this. Scripture is very explicit about this. In 2 Corinthians 9, Paul is talking about this principle of God giving to those who give to him. And he first says, remember, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. In other words, you're going to get back from God in proportion to what you give. But then he says, after that, he says, you will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. He's giving back to you so you can give more the next time around, which is exactly what you heard Dan and Dacia say. It's built our confidence, and so we want to give more this time. And, you know, I, I've told you many times before that I don't look at the, the giving information at the church on an individual level, so I don't know who gives what. I don't know who gives at all. One thing I do know is that the growth of this Thanksgiving offering over the past five years, from $60,000 five years ago to $880,000 last year, that growth has not just been driven by new givers because the church has not grown nearly that amount in that span of time. Rather, one of the main drivers of that growth from 60000 to 880000 has been the same people giving again and giving more than they gave before. And the question I want to ask is, how is that possible just logically, just in terms of math? How is that possible unless God is enlarging their capacity to give in response to their indication of their willingness to give? See, another way of looking at this is not just that God is giving back to you. Maybe the better way of looking at it is that when you give to God, then God gives back through you. He gives through you, and you're just this pipeline. You're just this conduit. He's not dumb. It's not like he, he doesn't see what's going on, and he sees, well, look, when resources go here, the resources end up where I want them to go, so I'm going to send more resources there so they end up where I want them to go. And what it means is you're just a pipeline. You're just a conduit, and the money is flowing through you, and as the pipeline grows, as the amount coming in grows and the amount flowing through you grows, you can get to the point actually where you're just living off of the leftovers, where there's more going out than there is that you're actually keeping, where you're living off of less than half and you're giving away more than half, giving away more than 51% of your income. And that's, I think it's, for some of you, that's what you should set your sights on. Maybe not this year, maybe not this decade, but gradually, incrementally pushing yourself to give more and more to where where you're giving 51% or more. And you say, how is that possible? That could never happen. But for a lot of you, you never thought you could give 10%. And you started by giving 10%, and somehow you're fine. Somehow you still have enough. The others of you pushed it further, 15%, 20%. Somehow you're fine. Somehow you still have enough. Watch what happens if you keep pushing it. But the key is you have to, you have to take the step first. You, know, you don't wait for the pipeline to grow and then say, well, okay, now it's big enough, so now I'll up my percentage. You up your percentage first. God sees where the money's going, and God directs more your way. So that's the, the first argument I want to make about this dynamic of God giving back to those who give to him is it actually has to work this way if God wants his work accomplished in the world. But the second argument, and we'll close with this, we'll wrap up with this, is, is not the logical utilitarian argument about why it has to work this way. The second argument is more relational, emotional, aesthetic argument about why it's good and right and beautiful that it works this way. The misunderstanding or misinterpretation that I want to most protect against this morning and that I would be most bummed out by if you walked out of here thinking is that what we're talking about today, this idea 
that what we're talking about today is like the Christian version of karma, essentially. You know, it's, it's what goes around, comes around, and so when you do a good deed by giving to the church, then the, the universe somehow rewards you for that good deed and you get something back in return. That's not what we're talking about. That's, that's 100% not the idea that we're talking about here because God is not a law of nature. God is not a force, an impersonal force. God is a person. He's not just any person. He's your father. So that's the, the point that Jesus is making in that passage from the Sermon on the Mount that we already looked at where he says, your father knows that you need these things and your father wants to provide for you. Those of you who are fathers know that providing for your children is one of the main ways that you show your love and affection for them. You, you like providing for them because it's a statement of your love. And, and likewise, they like giving you gifts too because they want to show their love for you. What you may have also noticed is that the gifts you give to them are worth a lot more than the gifts they give to you. You know, financially, like you always come out on the losing end of the deal. If you tallied it up, Father's Day, birthday, everything else, versus the gifts you've given to them, it's not even close because you have a greater capacity to give. You have more to give. You have a greater capacity to give. And it's this, you know, Moses mentioned it as this game, this game of giving. It is a game, but it's not like an a impersonal game. It's this game of trying to outdo one another in showing love. So uh, there's this book, it reminds me of this book that we have in our house that we used to read, this children's book about a, a daddy rabbit and a little rabbit, and the little rabbit says, you know, dad, I love you this much, and then holds his arms out as wide as they go, and the dad says, well, I love you this much, and holds his arms out as wide as they can go, and the little rabbit does a handstand and says, well, I love you up to my toes, and the dad picks him up and swings him up into the air and says, well, I love you up to your toes now. And the little rabbit jumps and says, oh, I love you as high as I can jump, watch. And the dad says, oh, I love you as high as I can jump, watch. A version of this that we play at our house is uh, our oldest, Reese, came up with this. She learned in school that uh, the human heart is the same size as the fist. And so she, she goes, Dad, I love you this much, and holds up her fist. You know, I love you with my whole heart. And I say, well, I love you this much. You know, and my fist is twice the size of hers. I have a bigger heart than she does. I have bigger capacity. I can love her more. And what's funny about this game, this game of trying to outdo one another and showing love, is that as much as the kid likes it, of being shown how much they're loved and seeing their father outdo them, the father actually likes it more. The father relishes his capacity to win. He relishes his greater strength, his stronger arms, his bigger heart, the way that he can pour out more and he can give more and he can win every time. And that's essentially what we're talking about, this whole giving thing, this game, but not an impersonal game, this game of trying to outdo one another in showing love, where you give to God and you say, God, I love you this much, and he gives back to you and says, well, I love you this much. I love you this much more. Another way of looking at it is it's not just about competing. It's also about imitation. So the kid, you know, when they're, they're doing whatever they're doing, jumping, whatever it is, they're, they're imitating something they've seen their father do. So, you know, the father jumps and the kid says, well, I want to jump high like that. And that imitation dynamic is at work here when it comes to giving as well. Because the way we've been talking about this, this morning, you can almost get the idea that we give first and then God gives only after we give. And that's true in this immediate context. In this immediate context, you do have to give first. But if you, you broaden it and look at the big picture, really, God gave first. 
God gave you life first. God gave you grace first. God gave you himself first in coming as Christ and, and dying for your forgiveness. God is a giver in his very nature. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave. Your father is generous. And so when you are generous, you're really just imitating him and trying to be like him. You know, it's, oh, I see what you did where you give so much and you're so generous and you so freely give. And I want to be like that. I want to give like that. And when you do that, your father sees that. And every dad loves to see their kid trying to emulate their strengths. And he says, early, you think you can, you can give like me. You think you're generous like I am. You think you can pour out like I can pour out. We'll, we'll watch this. You, that's how high you can jump. We'll watch how high I can jump. So this year, as every year, I dare you to get into this giving competition with your father. And if you do, I can tell you right now what will happen. What will happen is you will lose, and he will win, and you'll both be happy about it. Because that's the whole point of this thing, is to find out for yourself, not just because somebody told you, not just because you read it in the Bible, to find out for yourself as a matter of experience that he loves you and he can provide for you and he can meet your needs. Let's pray. God, we give to you because you gave to us. We look at your example of generosity. We want to be like you. You know the things that are holding us back. You know the fears we have. You know the worries we have. You know how we're afraid that you won't come through for us. You know how it's easier to trust ourselves than to trust you. I pray that you would address those fears in our heart. I pray that you would speak to us. I pray that you would push us and pull us and prod us and draw us toward yourself I pray that you'd help us to understand with fresh eyes how we won't ever understand that you're real until we give you something real to work with. By the power of your Spirit, help us to know how to act. Help us to know what to do and what to give. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.